We need grace for one another. We need to just love one another, respect one another's interpretations when we come down to this. But as the best we're able, we're going to set aside our preconceptions, set aside our prejudices and all that maybe we've heard before and spend these weeks examining and re-examining the text of God's word to try and hear what God would have us believe concerning the people of Israel, concerning the people of the church, concerning the people of God. Now, there is one certainty that I can talk about here this morning, and maybe you would agree with this, that it is almost impossible to be neutral on the status of Israel. Uh, the opinions concerning Israel are intense. For 4,000 years since the time of Abraham, when really the birth of the nation of Israel happened, when God called Abraham from Ur uh, in, in ancient Mesopotamia and said, I'm going to give you a land and you need to travel there and I'm going to make your seed a very great and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. From that time on, the Jews have been the object of deep love and adoration and the objects of intense hatred and persecution. And rarely has there been any middle ground. Rarely has there been ambivalence towards the Jews. There's usually an extreme one way or another. We have some pretty important questions that we have to ask as the followers of Jesus Christ, as the capital C church. We have to ask the question for understanding, is it accurate today to call the Jews God's chosen people? That's an important question to get at. You've probably heard that said. The Jews are God's chosen people. Israel is God's. Is that true? Is it consistent with what we read in the scriptures today? Do they occupy a special place in his future plans? And what response should the church have towards the Jewish people today? Where exactly are we going to find the answers? The newspapers? I'm looking for some help here. Where do we find the answers? Yeah, God's Word. Good. I thought maybe in July you had forgotten that. But here we are, looking again into God's Word in a passage that really explains it all very clearly for us. From the pen of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 through 11, no better scripture for us to look at as we answer these very questions. It's essential that we look at these with a heart open to the thing that God would teach us. The question would be, what difference is this going to make? I mean, Todd, this all sounds very interesting, but I got to go back to work tomorrow. I got to go back into my home, and it's not so easy living there, and I got my life to live, and I got all this going on. What difference is this going to make to me as I leave the room today? It's an essential question. It's essential that we understand who makes up the people of God. That's the key phrase. Who are the people of God? Because if God has a plan yet to be fulfilled for the nation of Israel, then as the church, as the people of God today, then we ought to act in a way that is consistent with the people of God. In other words, we ought to be responding to Israel in a way that would please our God, who has called us by his own name. That's if there is indeed a future for Israel. It's so important that we find out the answer. And further, we know that if Israel still occupies some place in God's plan, that there is a blessing attached to blessing Israel. Genesis chapter 12, when the Abrahamic covenant was given 
to the people. God said to Abraham, those that bless you will themselves be blessed. And listen, I want to find out, don't you? I See, I want to find out absolutely every way there is to be blessed. How many people here have received enough blessing so far in your life? You're done with blessing. Receive so much, God, no more blessing. Anybody here? Because if, like, if your blessing capacity is full, then I can understand why this doesn't matter to you. But when I look at something in the scriptures that says, look, if, if people will bless you, I'm going to bless them. Listen, I want to find out if blessing Israel makes any difference at all, don't you? Because I'm looking for every way possible to find a blessing from God. And then finally this. Why is it so important to figure all this out? Because the future for Israel is all tied to God's great plans and the culmination of history. One of the predominant themes of the prophets is this. Be watchful and be ready. And if God has a future plan for Israel, it's tied to his great plan to usher in the eternal kingdom. And I want to watch for every possible signpost I can possibly find to let me know that that day is coming. So that I too might be ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now hopefully that's enough reason for you and hopefully that'll change your life enough as you live out your life tomorrow. So let's turn to the scriptures right now. Uh, Romans chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be looking at most of chapter 9, although the first part in some detail, the latter part uh, not so much in, in as much detail, but we'll be coming back to it uh, as we go through the rest of this series. Uh, Romans chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 8. The Apostle Paul writing, uh, saying, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your great covenant love and faithfulness. God, we know that we need to understand these things. If we're to have any confidence in your promises, any confidence in your covenant. So, Father, bring us understanding today. May your Holy Spirit fall in this place. Do a work in every single mind and heart to exalt your name alone. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, God's plan for Israel is going to prompt me to ask some important questions, to consider some things. The first is this, my own deep burden for Israel. Do you have any deep burden for Israel? There's no doubt that the Apostle Paul had a deep 
burden for Israel. You have a pen in your hand. You're going to underline a couple of words here in the, in the second verse. Look what Paul says. I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish. Uh, you think about a Middle Eastern uh, mourning rites. You, you think about how people were busted up and, and, and externally flowing out from their inside out. This great sorrow. Great grief when they lost someone that they loved. Paul says here that, that his anguish over this was unceasing. It was never ending. It was night and day. It was day after day. It was week after week. It never left him. What was it that caused him such grief? That the Jews had rejected their Messiah. That Israel had been set aside. That the message was now penetrating into the Gentile world, but the Jews were left in the dust of their own rejection. And that no matter how hard he tried, no matter how much he pressed the issue with the Jews that he knew and loved, they only brought persecution into his life. Paul's approach, of course, was to go into city after city. He was the first missionary, if you will. He and Barnabas sent out from the city of Antioch, and they went throughout Asia Minor and then eventually into Greece. They went city to city, and the first place they went in every city was where? To the synagogue, to the gathering place of the Jews. Why did Paul start there? Well, because they knew that all of this Word of Messiah would be understood first by the Jews. They would understand the Hebrew Scriptures. They would have a point of reference to understand all of this, whereas the Gentiles wouldn't. The whole thing would be foreign to them. They would have no concept about any of it except to know, yeah, there's some Jews worshiping over there and something about their religion and one God and all of that, but really not understanding it. But to walk into a synagogue to proclaim Isaiah chapter 4 and 53, to say that this was fulfilled in the man Jesus Christ from Nazareth, so the Jews would understand. But instead, all Paul found was persecution. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 18, in, in Paul's journeys, we see Paul saying... That's it, I'm done with the Jews. The persecution's too intense. Uh, they're not accepting the message anyways. In Acts chapter 18, Paul says, from now on, I'm shaking the dust off my sandals, and I'm going to spend my time proclaiming this message to the Gentiles. Now, for those of us that are Gentiles in the room, and I think that might be like all of us, maybe there's someone of some Jewish background that I don't know, but this is largely a Jewish or a Gentile congregation. I'm so grateful that Paul's message penetrated into the Gentile world. That you and I had the opportunity to hear about the, the God of the Hebrews and the Messiah who came. It never changed Paul's burden, though, even though he went to the Gentiles. Paul's burden was still unceasing. It was a deep sorrow. And he writes here what's curious. Look at the top of your Bible. Who's he writing to? He's not writing to Jews. He's writing to the Romans. He's writing to Roman Gentile believers concerning his deep passion for the Jews. He wanted them to know how much he loved them. Why? Why was it so important that the Gentiles understand his love for the Jews? Because I believe from reading the scriptures, that we too as Gentiles must share the burden that Paul had for the Jewish people. 
We must have the same deep sorrow. We must have the same unceasing anguish that they rejected their Messiah. We have to look at the events of the Gospels and weep. But they never saw and never understood and never grasped what was happening on their own streets, in their own marketplaces, before their very eyes. The God of glory, the God they, have wor- they had worshipped and met in the wilderness and through all those years, the God who had performed miracle after miracle was walking their streets. They missed him. How tragic. We ought to have a deep grief that they missed it. And even if all we have is the past, if all we have is to look back on Israel, even if there is no future for Israel, this grief would still be there. It leads us to our second consideration here. God's plan for Israel also prompts me to ask about the rich spiritual blessings God gave to the nation. One commentator called these rich spiritual blessings divine prerogatives. They're things that God gave to the nation of Israel that he didn't give to anyone else. And we need to celebrate and acknowledge the things that God did through this people. The text says in verse 4 that these things belong to the Israelites. These are the things that were given to them. Look at the verse again. These are Israelites to whom uh, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. To them belong the Christ, the Messiah. Eight divine prerogatives. The first is this. Let's look at them. Adoption, entering into God's family. Now, this has got to be the great news, right? This is the great news, that I was adopted into his family. Let's be absolutely clear about this. You may have been raised, born into, and raised in a Christian home, but being in that Christian home never made you a Christian. Do we understand that? We have to totally understand that, that we start out alienated from God. We were born in sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, uh, Paul said earlier in this very letter to the Romans. We start out alien. We start out outside of the family. By God's grace and his good favor, he looks down upon us and says, you are alienated from me by your own sins, separated from me, Jeff, but I'm gonna, you're not in my family right now, God's saying to you, but you know what? I'm going to take you and I'm going to bring you into my family. And adoption literally means this. I make you my son and I give you all the rights and responsibilities that come with being my son, including, Jeff, you get to inherit all that I I have. Listen, that's pretty amazing. And I know there's people in this room that have been adopted. And, you know, it's, it's such a huge blessing to be raised in your own biological family. But let me say this. Those who are adopted, who were not raised by their biological family, but were adopted into another family and raised in that home, have a much better concept of what God has done with us in salvation. But I didn't have a family. Think about it back in the garden. There's Adam and Eve, and they sin. The deceiver leads them away from God. A separation comes in, and and then they go, and they got no support system, and no one's around them. They're even on each other a little bit. Uh, The woman that you gave me, she did cause me to sin. You don't think that caused 
a little bit of a rift at mealtime. They had no one to talk to. The one who led them into sin isn't talking to them anymore. There's no one to call. There's no one to email. There's no support group. It's just them. And now they've separated themselves from the God who used to walk in the garden with them and have perfect fellowship with them. And in that, God comes down and says, I'll take you back into my family. Not in my family, but I'm going to adopt you in. Listen, that comes to us through the Jews. Look back in chapter 8 of Romans. Chapter 8 and verse 15, you see, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, you're my, you're my daddy, you're my, I'm intimately related to you, you're my father. I have a family. And God's given me all the privileges and blessings of being in that family. This is salvation. This is how it comes to us. We have to be brought back in. And it's entirely a Jewish story. The cross of Jesus Christ where he gave his life for us to make this whole thing adoption possible was planted on Jewish soil. The resurrection happened. The cave was opened on Jewish soil. Everybody involved in this story was a Jew. Salvation, John 4, says, salvation is from the, help me, it's from the Jews. God gave them this divine prerogative, this rich spiritual blessing to pass on to the world. Here's a second thing it says in verse 4, to them belong the glory. Now, this is the experience of God's presence. And Israel was chosen by God to be the place or the people that God would re- through whom God would reveal himself to the world. Not just his plan, not just who he is, but literally reveal himself. And God's presence dwelt among the people. One of my favorite passages of scripture is to read about the construction of the first temple by King Solomon. And it says when the temple was created and it was so magnificent and so beautiful, there was never a temple like it. And Solomon prayed. It was an awesome moment of worship that took place and the Shekinah glory of God fell like a cloud on that place and people were laid out flat in the presence of God but there was no doubt anywhere in the world that God was there and God was nowhere else. Oh yes, he is completely present everywhere but his special presence dwelt among his people. It was Israel that was chosen for that. It was the Jews who were God's chosen people to have this presence of God to be a reflection of the glory of God. So God gave them. It belongs to them. Here's a third thing we see in verse 4. It's the covenants. The receiving of God's love. The covenants. The covenants were given to Israel. You know, the word covenant has kind of fallen on hard times, not just the word, but of course the whole concept of covenant has fallen on hard times today, hasn't it? Covenants can be broken so easily, we have no real concept of what it means to be in this kind of agreement with someone. Covenants are so important, I'm so grateful that there are actually two kinds of covenants that God made with his people, conditional and unconditional. In the conditional covenant, of course, God says, if you do this, I will do this. 
If you remain faithful to me, if you don't go after idols, then you're going to be able to remain in the land. You're going to be having the the blessing of God poured out upon you. Uh, The world will know. You'll be a witness to the nations. Listen, it's going to be all good if you remain faithful to me. It's a conditional covenant. God made some of those with his people. But God also made some unconditional covenants, one of them being the sending of a Savior who would would, uh, uh, provide all of us with uh, with the opportunity to be adopted. Aren't you glad that that one's unconditional? There's no way any of us could achieve under the thing that God was promising. God makes covenants. He's faithful to those covenants. Now, I got to say that this is one of the key sticking points in the divergent views concerning the nation of Israel. What do you do with the covenants? Do they belong exclusively to Israel? We'll talk more about it later in this series. Let me just say enough right now that I believe from God's word, it's clear from this text that the covenants belong to Israel, but it's clear from the rest of the New Testament that the covenants were fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. They are being fulfilled today. That the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant to provide a savior. Listen, we are reaping the benefits of all of those covenants to this very day. But they are not finally and ultimately fulfilled in the church today. And that there will be a day coming when God will bring the whole thing together. Church and Israel, one people of God in an eternal kingdom where all of the covenants will be perfectly and completely fulfilled. The heart of God's mission in the world always included The Gentiles, they were always part of the covenants. It is not enough to say that the covenants belong exclusively to Israel. God's program always, always, always included the Gentiles. Here's a fourth thing. The teaching. The teaching was given to Israel, hearing God's voice. We call this the scriptures, the word of God, given to us by the Jews. In two New Testament passages where uh, Peter and Paul refer to the scriptures, Paul says to Timothy, from a childhood you have learned the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. He's referring there to the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Uh, Peter says that no prophecy of the scripture was ever given by the will of man, but holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter's talking about uh, the Hebrew scriptures and the prophetic words that were given to the people of Israel. We have 66 books that comprise the inspired word of God. We call the Bible. We have this somewhat artificial distinction between Old and New Testaments. I say artificial because it really doesn't matter if you divide it in that manner at all. All 66 books are absolutely inspired from God and for us. The New Testament, hear me, is not superior to the Old Testament. The New Testament does not replace the Old Testament. We cannot do without the Old Testament. One is not more inspired than the other. The New Testament is really just the newer testament. It's just the more recent books. The Old Testament is really just the Older Testament, the more ancient books. But it's all God's Word. It's all God's Word. 
It's all God's word. Amen. I thought so. And how did this book come to us? How did we get it? Through the Jewish people. In fact, as far as I understand, only the book of Luke and Acts, the books of Luke and Acts, which are really two volumes of the same book, are written by a Gentile. And the rest of this book is written by Jews. And it's come to us from God. He gave the scriptures to the Jews to be passed on to a world that needed to hear from their God, needed to hear his voice. Here's a fifth divine prerogative, worship, adoring God's name. The whole idea of tabernacle and temple was to bring humanity back into the presence of God. And the Jews were used of God, Israel was used of God to demonstrate proper worship, right biblical worship. There are people today in the broad scope of what is called the church who are inventing their own ways of worship and think they can make up their own methodologies. And God says, look, I've already laid it all out for you. It's all right here. I told the Jews how worship ought to happen. Now, I'm not talking about the ritualistic formalities of of Old Testament worship, of pre-Messiah worship, much of which pointed to Christ, and once he came, the ritualistic forms of Old Testament worship were set aside. But the heart of worship is all there, that we are to sing and make melody in our hearts. We are to sing psalms uh, to the Lord. We're to express our heart to God in that way, that we're to be reading the scriptures in worship, that we are to be intensely talking to God in prayer as part of our worship, that we are to fast, that we are to feast, that we are to celebrate, that we are to dance, that we are to shout. And hope our voices don't crack when we do. (laughs) All of this is Hebrew worship. All of it has come to us from our God through the Jews. We can't invent how to worship. It all came to us. It's all right here in the Word. And the Scriptures taught us through the Jews how to lay it down and live it out every single day of our lives in that day-to-day act of worship that is the Christian life. It's all right here. It all came to us through Israel. Here's a sixth divine prerogative. The rich blessings from God. Promises. Verse 4 also speaks of the promises being given to Israel, resting in God's strength. Every promise delivered came from Israel, came through Israel. Promises are everything. And when we live in a hopeless world, when we're hanging on by our fingernails, when everything is evaporating around us and crumbling beneath our feet, when the pressure is on in our lives. Does that describe anybody here? Last week, last month, right now? When none of it seems to make sense? And all you have is a promise. I take you all the way back to the Garden of Eden again, and Adam and Eve have sinned, and God comes down and he has to proclaim, well, he has to bring down some discipline. You know what I like to bring down some discipline? You ever had to bring down some discipline in your home, three kids? It's mostly a diner bringing the discipline. Mostly in your life, probably, Stuart, actually. <laughs> God had to bring down some discipline. To say a hard thing, you sinned. Got to get you out of the garden. You can't stay here. 
It's going to be a curse on the ground. Adam, it's going to be hard to work. It's going to be pain in childbirth. A lot of bad things. You can imagine Adam and Eve, their shoulders sinking, hunched over. What did we do? Why did this happen? All this discipline is so bad. And in the midst of all of that, what does God do? He delivers one thing more to them. A promise. Genesis 3.15. Someday, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. Oh, wow. We've been hanging on that promise ever since. And it was fulfilled in whom? Jesus Christ. And when he hung on that cross and declared, it is finished. When as the Apostle Creed says, he descended into hell, he defeated the evil one for all eternity. It's over. The curse of sin is canceled. We can be adopted. Listen, that's all started with a promise in the garden at the darkest time in human history. God delivered a promise. God delivered promise after promise after promise, all based on that first one. Look, I'm still with you. I'm still tracking with you. Abraham, come. I'm going to turn you into a people. This people that are going to bless the whole world from Abraham to Moses to, to, uh, to David. The promise passed on, different words at times, but always God's covenant faithfulness. I'm going to fulfill it. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. All of it delivered. Through the Jewish people, God kept his promise. And God gives us strength to walk day by day, understanding that his promise remains. And just as Jesus Christ came the first time and kept his promise, Jesus Christ will return again. And the end, the ultimate object of all hope is for us to be looking up into the sky into the clouds and longing for the coming of Christ. Oh, that I might be faithful until that day. God's promised he's coming. Here's a seventh thing. The patriarchs. God also raised up in Israel a godly heritage, men who live for God and live perfectly. When I look at the Hebrews chapter 11 list, I'm actually kind of shocked by some of the people that, live, that, are, that appear in Hebrews 11 in this hall of faith. Samson's there. Oh my goodness. Samson? you got to be kidding me. He's a man of faith. Somehow it worked out. Not perfect. A disaster in so many ways, but in that last final act, calling out to God, expressing his faith. David, the adulterer and murderer, man of faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, men of faith, live for God, not to be left out. Sarah, a woman of faith, to follow a man who said, hey, honey, we're leaving. Where are we going? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> woman of faith. How many women here would do that with their husbands? Forget it. <laughs> Show me the map. Rahab, a prostitute and a Gentile, a woman of faith. God gave us all of these people as an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that we might live our life in the same way, live by faith. God gave the patriarchs, the fathers of our faith, God gave them to us through the people of Israel. I love the scene in Revelation chapter 21. What's your hometown? 
have to think about it. What's your hometown? My hometown is New Jerusalem. I haven't been there yet, but it's my hometown. I'm just an alien and a foreigner in a strange place living down here, right? It's not Montreal. It's not St. Thomas. It's not Barrie. Those aren't my hometowns. That's just where I lived here on earth. My hometown is New Jerusalem. We see it in Revelation chapter 21, this wonderful description of what this city is all about. What's really cool about this city is the names of the patriarchs and the names of the apostles are part of the very construction of this city. A clear indication that there is but one people of God. The foundations of the city were laid. And on the foundations, we see the names of the 12 apostles, all of them Jewish, by the way. On the gates of the city, 12 gates all around the city of Jerusalem, the names of the 12 patriarchs, the 12 sons of Jacob, who gave their names to the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, their names all over this wonderful city, your hometown, the New Jerusalem. The patriarchs, God gave them to us through the Jews. I mean, if anybody would call themselves a follower of Jesus Christ and say in some completely heretical and hate-filled way that they don't like Jews, then they're not really going to like the New Jerusalem. God would have us love the Jews and celebrate how God used the patriarchs to lay the foundation for our faith. Here's the final thing we see in verse 5. Of course, the Christ who is God over all and blessed forever. Christ following God's Son. You guys all heard, right, that uh, Jesus was Jewish, right? You knew That's not a surprise to anybody, right? Uh, Jesus was Jewish. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born in the line of David. He would be the Savior of the world, but he would come from the Jews, Uh, Jesus was born in the land. He never left the land. Jesus never applied for or got his Israeli passport. Never had to because he never left the country. He was the son of David. He learned in the synagogues. He worshipped at the temple. He observed the holy days and feasts on the Jewish calendar. He was in every way possible Jewish. No way around it. Jesus was not a Christian. We are Christians, little Christs, literally the word means. A derogatory term first given to the followers of Christ. Uh, Jesus is not a Christian. He is not a little Christ. He is the Christ, the Messiah of the Jews, given for the redemption of the world. So we see these eight prerogatives, spiritual divine prerogatives, these rich spiritual blessings, all of them given to the people of Israel that the whole world might be blessed for them. And we should thank God for all of this and celebrate it and acknowledge it for what it is from the divine hand. God's plan for Israel prompts me to ask this final thing. To ask about my understanding of faith and what it means to be the one people of God. I mean, how do you get to be in the people of God? We've already established that I need to be adopted into that, and so I'm not naturally born into it. It doesn't really matter if you were raised in a Reformed home or a Baptist home or a Pentecostal home or a Catholic home or whatever. None of that really means anything to God. We're not standing there on the judgment day saying, hey, you know what? I was raised in a Baptist church. I was raised in an Anglican church. It's all good. 
It's, it's personal. It's got to be personal. It's got to be individual, a coming to Christ, being confronted with the truths about Christ and responding to those very truths. And so I have to have this understanding of faith, what it means to be the people of God, the one people of God. And look at verse, verse 4 again. Notice what Paul says here. They are Israelites. He doesn't say that they're Jews, but he uses Israelites. What's the difference? Well, Jew referred to the ethnic origin of the Jewish people. So lots of people can be Jewish if they're born into it. In other words, you can be born a Jew, but you are not a true Israelite unless by faith you receive the promises of God and believe him to be who he is, and all of it by faith. Now look what it says, beginning in verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descendant from Israel, in other words, not everybody who is a Jew belong to Israel. Not everybody who is born into a Jewish family embraces the covenant promises that God made. The scriptures are so clear here. Not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. Uh, just because you were born to a Jewish mom and dad. Listen, it doesn't mean that you're Abraham's offspring. It doesn't mean that you've embraced this thing by faith. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so it is it's so important that we understand because it's so easy for us to mistakenly believe that we can somehow stumble into this, that somehow, listen, one of the greatest dangers of raising your kids in a Christian home is that somehow culturally they think they can just stumble into this whole thing and it all just becomes so second nature to them, but they never actually make a personal decision for Jesus Christ. And moms and dads, we have to be so vigilant to be sharing the gospel with our kids and telling them, listen, it's not enough that you piggyback on our faith. God doesn't work that way. It's so important that 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds, listen, however old you are, make a consideration to ask yourself, have I ever truly become a follower of Jesus Christ? Ritual and religion aside, Cultural background aside, have I embraced this by faith? Not all Israel is true Israel. Not every Jew a follower of Yahweh simply because they were of Jewish lineage. Not every Jew passed into the presence of God when they died because they were Jewish, but only because they had faith in Yahweh. Salvation is always from the time sin entered this world. It's always been about faith. Adam and Eve restored their relationship to God by faith in a promise that the serpent's head would be crushed by the seed of Eve. Not because from that time on they just didn't eat from the wrong trees. Not because they did something outwardly. Baptism is commanded in the scripture, but it doesn't save you. Membership is one of the greatest things that you can do to identify with the local church and say, hey, I'm really for this thing and we're going to do this work together, but it doesn't save you. Taking all the encounter classes is a wonderful way to be discipled in the ways of Jesus Christ, but it doesn't get you to heaven. 
serving down in higher ground or in the parking lot or becoming a small group leader is commanded in the scripture. We're to take the gifts that we have and use them for his glory to build up the body of Christ, but it doesn't get you into heaven. It has always and only been about faith. Our word for last month was faith, in fact, Hebrews 11.6. You remember it? For without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those that would draw near must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now understand what faith is. Those who would draw near, those who would come into a relationship with God must have faith. It's impossible to please God without that faith. Those that would draw near into a relationship with God must believe that he is. In other words, you must have some understanding of who he is. There must be some intellectual understanding of all of this. But then, you see, it needs to go further than that. It isn't just knowing the word of God. It's also acting upon it. You must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, who actually act it out. Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. It has always been about faith. Who are the one people of God? Just getting a start on it. Really got to take in the whole series. So we fully understand the rest of what God wants to say to us here. The one people of God are all of those who have embraced him by faith, whether Jew or Gentile, whether before or after the coming of Messiah. One people of God, the people of God by faith. Let's pray together. I just want to press in this morning as you have your eyes closed and your heads bowed. I just want to press in and ask you a question. Have you truly become a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you embraced him by faith? Have you been adopted into his family? Acknowledging your own sinfulness and the separation from him and said to him, I want the forgiveness of sins. I want to become a follower of Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. There is no other way to be saved. I want that. I need it. And a lot of people in this room have done that. There may be people in this room who have never done that. I'm not going to ask you to respond in this very moment. But I'm asking you to consider it very carefully whether or not you are a follower of Christ. And as we close the service in a few moments... There's going to be some people that are up here at the front, leaders in our church. They're going to be ready to talk to you at the end of the service. And you just need to come forward and just say, you know what? I just heard what Todd said today. I heard God's word. The Spirit's pressing in on me. And I want to become a follower of Jesus Christ today by faith. Father, I would pray that the word of God sown here today would sink deep into our hearts. Continue to give us understanding in all of these things. Help us to live our lives in a way every day that pleases you. And I would pray, especially right now, for those who are considering becoming <laughs> followers of Christ, 
I pray that your Holy Spirit would be so overwhelmingly compelling them to become followers of Christ today that they cannot resist the pull that you have on them. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.